0: Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu.
1: Hello, this is FEPS Talks, I'm the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies from Brussels. My name is Lars Lohander. I'm the Secretary General of uh, FEPS. And I have the pleasure today to welcome Professor Anke Hassel who is a professor of public policy at the Hertie School of uh, Governance. And she also has had longstanding cooperation with the Hans Böckler Foundation in uh, Düsseldorf. Uh, Welcome, Anke, uh, to this uh, podcast. And first of all, I would like to congratulate you on uh, the publication of um, a very important book, uh, which is called Growth and Welfare in Advanced Capitalist Economies. You co-edited it with Bruno Pallier, who is a professor at uh, Sciences Po in Paris, a very well-known expert on social policy and the welfare states. To me, it appears that this book is a kind of milestone in uh, European political economy because it covers uh, about 30 years and puts the question of uh, the gross models into the centre. It doesn't describe the European integration process as a success story, but a very critical analysis. What do you criticise in particular in this book?
0: Yes, thank you, Lazarus. Thank you for inviting me and um, for your nice words about the book. So when you ask me what I criticize you, I must say this is obviously a scholarly book and our starting point is really a scholarly discussion about the development of the welfare state, but also the development of political economies in Europe and beyond. And if we start from that theoretical starting point, what we criticize is really in the discussion about the welfare state, is that we think that uh, not enough attention has been paid in the research community how closely the welfare state is integrated into the political economy of the member states of the EU so if we want to understand why the welfare state develops in certain directions and as we all know it is very varied within the EU but also doesn't is not on a common trajectory the welfare states in different countries de- <clears throat> develop in different directions if we want to understand it we have to understand the different growth regimes These uh, welfare states interact with and only if we see them in tandem if we see how the growth regime of a country develops, then we can understand how the welfare state develops so that is the the first uh, sort of critical engagement with literature we do. And the other one is we address the political economy community also in a scholarly debate. And as you know, for the last 30 years, this has been very much uh, dominated by an understanding of a varieties of capitalism approach that we actually find very different types of capitalisms. Also within the EU, we have different types of capitalism. And that discussion had sort of become a bit stale and not very dynamic because we were always talking about types and models. And we want to introduce a bit more dynamism in this uh, debate by looking at growth regimes and how they unfold over time. And also how they change over time. So uh, 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 we pay attention to the changes and also to the variety, which goes much beyond two different types. We talk about five types and the, the types we identify, but there might be more. Mm -hmm. And uh, substantially, if you ask me substantially, what we would criticize or what we uh, look at uh, critically is really the way governments use the welfare state as a growth strategy. And that is our key argument that we say policy reforms on welfare are undertaken in order to. Uh, support growth in different member states. And the the Lisbon agenda is actually a good one because it says, you know, we want to modernize our welfare states also to improve growth rates within the EU but that means that the welfare state, which is really meant to protect people against social risk, is used for something different. And mm-hmm. it it is used in a particular way. And if you are in a country which is domini- dominated by financial services industries, for instance, like the UK, you get a kind of social policy reform agenda, which has a lot to do with financial services provisions and services like the privatization of pensions, which plays a, a big role in Anglo-Saxon countries, for instance. And if you look at other countries which are more export dominated or dominated by manufacturing industries like the German economy, you get a different kind of social policy reforms, which made a strong distinction, for instance, between labor market insiders and outsiders. So this is the kind of debate we are having in that book by looking at different kind of growth regimes on the one hand and different kind of social policy reforms on the other.
1: It's very interesting what you said about the growth models and the welfare state. Is it an overstatement in your view to describe it in a way that uh, the social policy becomes in a way a servant of economic growth policies and uh, subordinated while it should be able to pursue its own legitimate objectives in reality?
0: I wouldn't put it in such strong words I wouldn't call it a servant because they are obviously in the electorate there are certain expectations by voters what the welfare state should do and there are certain political dynamics for instance when we look at pension reforms that pensioners have an expectations you know that they are covered by basic pensions etc so and in that way there is an autonomous room of a room of for the welfare state and it is not a servant to the economy But what we see is that in addition to that, that governments use social policies in order to improve or in order to foster a certain growth strategy. And that we can see that very well because they interact with dominant businesses and dominant industries in these countries and governments try to feed into the development of these industries.
1: Then, um, inevitably, uh, my next question is about the role of the European Union in this process, in this transformation, because this 30-year period Uh, coincides with uh, the creation um, of uh, the European Union, a very advanced form of economic integration, when uh, concepts like Social Europe or the European social model have also been in circulation. And um, obviously, I have to ask you whether you see the role of the European Union um, in a positive or a critical uh, light. Uh, Can we... Uh, sum up um, what the EU got right or wrong in this period regarding the connection between the gross model and the social dimension?
0: Well, that is a big question. <laughs> especially over such a long period of time. But I think the fundamental observation, which we also have in the book by a, I think, excellent chapter by Fritz Sharp, is to say that within the EU, we find a fundamental imbalance between the role of economic integration on the one hand and the role for social protection and social standards on the other hand. And that is uh, somewhat surprising if you look at the evolution of European economies, in particular Northern European economies, where we not only have economies that are highly successful. If you look at sort of competitiveness ranking um, worldwide, like the World Economic Forum has, we find on the top 10 Uh, global league, we find the northern European economies, you know, Sweden is in there, Germany is in there, Finland is in there. So these are highly competitive economies. And at the same time, these are economies that provide a high level of social protection, a high level of social spending. So these are really the most advanced welfare states in the world at the same time as being highly uh, competitive. So in Europe, we actually know that social protection does not contradict economic success, It is more the other way around. We know that a lot of the economic success of the Northern European countries rests on a welfare system and also on on an education system and also on a public spending system, which is highly conducive for economic growth and business success. So in principle, we know that. But when we then look at the EU, we see that the EU has focused uh, very much on economic integration, as you said, and starting with a single European market. And the single European market has been instituted in a way that it always had an upper hand vis-à-vis other forms of integration. And that is both political integration, but also social integration. The, The role of economic integration was always dominant towards these other kinds of integration. And that creates problems because then if we look at social standards, if we look at the role of social protection, we had not only cases where social protection had to be reduced in the light of, of the single European market, for instance, when it comes to freedom of movement, but also when we then look at the how the Eurozone has been instituted and has been set up, we saw that there was an inherent conflict between the way a, a mature welfare state is instituted and a mature welfare state functions in the member states of the eurozone and at the same time the necessities of the eurozone so this contradiction has not really been solved but uh, you know when we look at the experience after the financial crisis we know what happened you know the financial crisis was followed by a debt crisis and we know that in by addressing the debt crisis of the southern european countries this led to deep interventions into the welfare state of southern europe and this was obviously a very painful process process And in the EU and the social model or the so-called European social model was not able to stop that or to prevent that from happening. And I think that is problematic. And that is what we describe in our book.
1: Right. Uh, you quoted uh, Fritz sharp who is one of the authors um, in this book. Indeed, um, he has been in the last 20, 25 years, a leading voice on criticizing this imbalance between the mm-hmm. economic integration on the one hand and uh, the social uh, dimension on the on on the other hand, but how to address this imbalance? Is it possible to address it without much more solidarity uh, in the European Union um, or much more material solidarity, to
0: be more precise? Well, there there is um, you know that there, there there are various ways to address it, and one is really to look more at the fiscal space at the European level and to create a much bigger and larger fiscal space and this larger fiscal space would then be an expression of solidarity but because it would allow much more spending in countries that need more more social spending and more fiscal spending. Mm -hmm. So that would be one way to address it and what we now see in the pandemic, the responses and the, the instruments that the EU has now adopted in the recovery fund is obviously one way to do that and one wide way to address that. I think another way to address it is really to look harder at the single European market and to ask the question whether the priorities of the single European market should always trump the national institutions and national policies. So I think we need to have a redress and a rethink about to what extent can member states protect their welfare system, they can protect their labor market institutions and labor market regulations also against the single European market. Mm -hmm. And there should be more flexibility also on the side of the European regulations that allow member states to protect their social standards better. So that would be another way to do that, which does not have to do with European redistribution and the European fiscal space, but it is really about regulating the single European market. So I think there are ways of doing that, and we should have this discussion about how to do
1: it. Mm -hmm. If I understand correctly, you are quite critical about the crisis response in the previous crisis, the so-called Eurozone debt uh, uh, crisis. But you mentioned at least one positive example about the COVID uh, crisis uh, response, um, um, allowing me to think that perhaps there has been an evolution of the policy. Perhaps some lessons were learned about the past failure and the recent uh, yeah, already was uh, uh, more progressive, if you can say so, uh, from this point of view.
0: Yes, I I think that's true. And I think that is true Um, definitely when we look at the response to to the financial crisis. I think there has been a learning process. Uh, But also, I think the same is true for the single European market. I think there's also a learning process when we look at the relationship between economic rights on the one hand and social rights on the other hand. I think in both areas we see learning processes the, my, my criticism would be is that you know the adjustment process, which we have seen after the financial crisis in the last ten years, was a very painful adjustment crisis for many Southern European countries. And the learning curve in Europe is just not steep enough. Uh, we learn at a very slow pace. We do learn. Uh, you know, it's not that that people don't learn, but it it definitely takes a long time. And we, we sometimes forget how much suffering that brings in certain countries. If we look at youth unemployment unemployment, for instance, in, in Southern Europe, we know that there are real people suffering from these policies. And I, I would plead mm. that we should just sort of speed up the learning curve because, you know, we, we can learn faster if we really tried.
1: Uh, okay. But is it part of the learning that uh, when the COVID uh, shock uh, came last spring, the European Commission uh, almost immediately came forward with um, a 100 billion euro loan scheme for supporting Kurzarbeit. Uh, short-time work arrangements in um, uh, the member states. Um, Last summer, uh, they uh, put forward a reinforced use guarantee. Um, In the autumn, they proposed a scheme for minimum wage coordination uh, to protect um, the lowest wages across uh, Europe. So does this um, represent a good and responsible crisis response
0: for you? Yes, I I think the the EU needs to figure out what role um, it really wants to play. I mean, certainly all these responses were uh, the correct responses and they were necessary in the crisis because all member states needed some kind of Kurzarbeiter scheme. All member states need to find a a new way of helping young workers to get into the labour market. So all these responses are right. The question is, you know, at what level should it be the responsibility of the EU? What is the re- the role of the EU itself? And what is the role of the member states? And, and there, I think, if we look ahead, we need to come to an arrangement where it is clear to what extent can the member states themselves deal with such a crisis? Mm-hmm. and are not part of the straitjacket of the economic system that the EU has created, in particular in the Eurozone? And to what extent is it the role of the Commission and the EU to uh, step in in these situations? And I think this discus- discussion is not uh, finished yet. You know, We still have to have this discussion. What is actually the role of the EU and what is the role of the member state?
1: Exactly. I think it's just going to be relaunched uh, to discuss seriously Uh, The set of fiscal rules, and if I understand correctly, a progressive reform of the fiscal rules should be the key, in a way, to the sustainability of uh, the welfare states um, in the European Union.
0: Yes. Absolutely, and I, I'm absolutely convinced that we need to be more flexible with fiscal rules because member states also need to have a leeway at the national level to create their own responses. And in a way, that comes out of our book as well because we say these different growth regimes, as we call them, are very different. And in different countries in particular, if we again look at, at Germany as the most, as the biggest economy within the EU, the, the German economy has a very particular growth model. And this growth model is really, based on manufacturing exports. But we cannot expect that all the member states in the Eurozone, but also all the member states of the EU follow the same model because they are actually not able to do so. Not every country is uh, is in the position of developing an export-led growth. So Mm. for these countries, which are much more demand-led and which have very different economic structures, we also need to find policy instruments that they, they can use at the national level, in order to respond to these crises. And it's not just the crisis, but it's also, you know, we have big challenges ahead. You know, when we talk about the, the uh, New Green Deal, for instance, we, you know, we need to manage a transition to a carbon free economy. And again, I think at the level of the member states, we need a variety of policy instruments that they can then employ.
1: It's very interesting that you say that not every country can follow the German model. For me, the question is whether Germany itself should follow the German model, because uh, in the last uh, quarter of century, you know, the Hartz Reform and various other uh, reforms resulted in a German economy, which is a world champion in exports, but probably is lagging behind in quite a few areas. Um, some uh, a lot of people would complain about uh, you know the level of investment that there is a lot of underinvestment in Germany, but um, also the minimum wage at the end was necessary because wages were also lagging behind. There are still some uh, really critical sectors like the meat industry. Uh, with atrocious uh, working conditions. So in a way, the German model is not exactly what a lot of people would believe it is. How would you comment on that?
0: I I would say you're absolutely right. The German model is, um, on the surface, the German model is obviously very successful because it has restructured its economy. After German reunification, we had a long period of very high unemployment. We have very high debt. And then after the turn of the century, we started a process in which employment started to grow, in which we had uh, better performances, also better economic performances, and people were very. Pleased with the um, with the overall development of the German economy at, at at a superficial if you look at it superficially, but if you look a bit more closely, you see all the phenomena you just described. We have high levels of underinvestment into public infrastructure, also into public services. We have um, we had a continuous decline in the public sector. Public sector employment went down. We have also also as you described uh, wages did not follow the European average, Germany has underperformed for decades when in comparison to wages in other countries. And not only that, we have an increasing divergence in wages between the manufacturing sector and the service economy, meaning that in the manufacturing sector, we actually have a wage development that is in line with productivity growth. But in the service sector, we have a wage development which lacks behind the productivity Mm. increases in the sectors. So And that creates all sorts of problems. It creates a lot of problem of in-work poverty. Germany is the country that has very high levels of in-work poverty, which a lot of people don't really think when they look at the success of the German economy. We are just behind the Anglo-Saxon countries. We are just behind the some of the Eastern European countries, but we are not doing well. And despite the successes on the labor market, despite very low unemployment levels at the moment, in-work poverty has not really gone down. And the same is true for long-term unemployment employment. So there are a lot of social problems attached to the German model, which you really don't wish other countries to follow. It is not a role model in that sense that we say, you know, we should really prescribe to other countries to follow. But that is what the EU has done, you know. And if we look at it, we have forced a lot of Southern European countries to actually follow the German model by reducing their domestic demand, by reducing public spending and social spending. The only thing that countries then could do, was to engage in a process of disinflation by lowering wages and lowering public spending on pensions, et cetera. So a lot of the Southern European countries are already on a German trajectory Mm -hmm. and they realize that it is actually a rather painful trajectory. And what you can see if you follow this path is that you do end up with very bad state of public infrastructure and not enough of public investment in necessary infrastructure. So Mm -hmm. I wouldn't recommend it. As you have mentioned, the the meat industry, I don't know whether you want to go into the question of the meat industry, which is a sort of, I think, a particularly embarrassing um, aspect of the germ model, but it is part of that model. It is a part of the model of really driving down wages wherever you can. And that is you know, what, ha- what is happening, not just in the meat industry. It is actually also happening in other industries, in agriculture, but also in the care industries. In some instances, we have a model which is based on very low wages from four migrant workers coming from Eastern Europe. And they are posted. A lot of them are uh, hired by temping agencies, which then are situated in Eastern European countries. They pay very low Eastern European wages. They are posted into German slaughterhouses. And the and the slaughterhouses can use them because the German regulation, the legal regulation of outsourcing, is very generous and very loose. So a slaughterhouse can outsource mainly parts of its production within the same company and within the same uh, site of the plant to Eastern European temping Agency, who then send people on very low wages. And that leads to all sorts of problems, and not just the wages, but also um, other kinds of fraud that is committed, illegal practices, health and safety practices are very poor, and uh, the, the, you know, German politics have also started to dismantle the health and safety regime within Germany. They have dismantled sort of labor inspections, etc. So it is also, you know, for companies very easy to engage in such a business model because the danger to being found out and then fined is very low. So this is a really a bad part of the German economy.
1: I think this would um, easily open a new chapter for the discussion about uh, the obsession with trade surpluses and a kind of lopsided interpretation of what is economic competitiveness. But in fact, I would like to come back to uh, where we started the discussion the growth model, because the way you described the German experience would justify a discussion on the need for a new growth model, as also in the European Union as a whole, um, there is a discussion about the new growth model post coronavirus which should be greener, based on digital industry, knowledge-based economy, uh, which is not entirely a new topic, but um, perhaps the the recovery period should energize uh, discussions on such a new growth model. Is there such a debate in Germany now?
0: yes that it to some extent there is and the debate is shifting i think until un, until about 3 or 4 years ago the assessment of the german growth model in the political discourse, was very positive and just looked at uh, the trade balance and it looked at employment rates and it looked at the labor market. And uh, people in the government said, you know, we are doing very well. And they had a very positive view of of the German uh, growth model. And that has changed. And it has changed in in various ways. It has changed because the, the problems that uh, derive from low public investment, these problems are now visible. They are visible in the transportation sector. They are visible if you look at German rail. But they're also very visible now in the corona crisis when you look at uh, health authorities. You know, the German health authorities are not digitalized. They really battle with fax machines. You know, there's a big discussion about, you know, how can we uh, trace corona cases if we don't have the software to do so, if we find it very difficult to introduce new software because we don't have the IT systems in place and we don't have the IT managers in public authorities in place who can actually use them. So there's a big a backlog of investments into digitalization in the public sector. And that has become painfully visible. Also, if you look at schools, how schools had to move to online teaching, and all of a sudden it became clear that teachers in Germany don't even have an email address. They don't even have uh, access to a computer at school. They don't have any access to any IT equipment at school. And you think this cannot be you know, the modern Germany that you would expect, but it, that is the case. So in terms of of investment into ICT, investment into digitalization, also, but more generally investment into public infrastructure, the, the discourse has changed a lot. And this obviously is also tied in with a discourse into the carbon-free economy because Germany op- obviously has signed... The Paris Agreement. The, the and Germany is also part of the European discourse of a carbon-free economy, and they know that there is a big problem with the car industry. You know that the German car industry has to fundamentally change its business model, because the combustion engine is the thing of the past and will not lead to a carbon-free economy. So there, there's a lot of challenges, and the the change that has happened is that people are now much more willing to see the problems and to see the challenges and then also slowly to address them.
1: If I ask you about, let's say, the greatest single risk factor out of the coronavirus crisis uh, for the social policy and the welfare state uh, in Europe, what would you highlight um, something which uh, you know the policymakers would need to pay great attention to in order to get the recovery right and ensure that... Uh, the welfare state doesn't emerge from this uh, crisis in a much more precarious um, uh, situation?
0: I think we cannot quite oversee the effects of the corona crisis because we are still in a phase where a lot of businesses are protected by short-term working schemes and by other help and uh, state subsidies. So we, you know, in in Germany, we now have a discussion about zombie companies that are kept alive because they, you know, they, they can do so. But once the crisis is over or once we move out of the current wave, then it will be much more visible to see the damage which corona has done to the economy and therefore to the labor market and therefore also to to, and lead to many social effects. So I I think at the moment it's very difficult to oversee what is going to happen in a year's time or two years time when we come out of the crisis. If we ask me sort of who are the people who are probably mostly affected, um, I think what we can see already is that there are winners and losers from the crisis. You know, there are certain um, groups in society who are highly protected and these are probably people like you and me because we, you know, we can move to our home offices, we have relatively stable jobs, we are... uh, very much protected. But then there are other people who are not as much protected, and these are either the frontline workers who have to go out every day and have to run a certain social risk of being an, uh, infected and who are also very stressed out by their jobs because they work in the care sector or in the retail sector. But then there's a, 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 a third group, and I think this, this third group is the most vulnerable group. And these are the groups of people who used to work in the service economy, in the restaurant, and in in the entertainment business, and these are the people who are just starting out their professional lives, and these are particularly young workers. So I think the people who are most at risk at the moment is that they are young workers and also um, uh, young people who are still at school who might finish school now and who will find it very difficult to find their way into the labor market or even if they graduate from university to find their way into a job. And I I think the big challenge is really, once we come out of the crisis, is to find tools and instruments to help young workers to find their ways into good jobs, not just precarious jobs. And and this is particularly a problem in those countries where we already have a lot of young people in very precarious jobs. And again, this is the situation in Southern Europe. And that is sort of uh, so on the one hand, frustrating, but also really dangerous because, you know, if we look at the last crisis, if we look at the uh, financial crisis, even then it was the young people who suffered most from the consequences of the uh, financial crisis, who lost their jobs and who were then pushed into very precarious work arrangements and if we do this again in a situation where the labor market in southern europe has not quite recovered we get in really dangerous situations because then people might get really fed up with the way not only their their economies are run but also the way the eu is handling the crisis
1: indeed um, and uh, to the conditions of these critical groups the policies cannot respond in the conventional way but they also have to Innovate, if I understood you correctly. Yeah. Look, uh, Professor Anke Hasser, thank you so much for your time and um, the explanations you gave about uh, the new book. I cannot wait to read it myself about the gross uh, models and how the advanced capitalist economies uh, developed in the recent decades. Thank you so much for the insight uh, you shared uh, with us today. And um, I would like to ensure future... Febs event will also benefit from your contributions and also authors who contributed to this um, very interesting volume. Our um, listeners will um, find FEBS talks in various uh, uh, podcast platforms and uh, I encourage you also to follow FEBS as well as the Progressive post on Twitter. Thank you very much for your attention and i see you next time.
0: Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned!